Heavenly Father, it is no small task for us to hear from you. So many things get in our way. It's just the busyness of life and the weakness of our nature. It's our lack of devotion. And so we come today distracted by many things, some good, but not the best. And we long to hear from you. And we long to see your beauty. And we long to be touched by the mercy and the power and the amazing grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Do that this morning we pray in your matchless name, amen. Well, first of all, I must apologize. Um, my wife and I were gone for a couple weeks of vacation, but I don't know that you were notified of it. I really, I really hate to talk about myself, but I also understand that in this position, at times you've got to say something, and we didn't. So I got calls like, Don, are you dead? <laughs> um, Someone else said, uh, I hope you're not sick or ill. And none of those things uh, were the case. We just got away for a little bit of relaxation. But we worshiped with you while we were gone and prayed for you. And it is really good to be back. I didn't hear that, but all right. <laughs> and my hearing is going in my old age. <clears throat> hyperbole. We use it constantly. Things like, she's as old as the hills. Well, she may be very old, but she's not that old. Or we'll say something like, I've told, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. My parents used to use that, and that might not have been hyperbole, actually. <laughs> Or, uh, I was on that plane trip forever, and yet here you are. <laughs> or, the pen is mightier than the sword. So the general says to the soldiers, I'm giving you each a big pen. Go out and fight. Well, we know it's not literal. It's intended to intensify some particular feeling, emotion, or truth. But I am not speaking in hyperbole when I say to you that what we're going to talk about today is the greatest thing in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest thing. You say, well, I'm not exactly sure what it is. You've come to the right place, the book of Romans, because that's what Paul wants to talk about. As Doug read a moment ago from Romans chapter 1, talking about his own calling to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the flesh was seed of David, according to the spirit, he's the son of God raised with power. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believes. There is a righteousness come, coming from God. It's a righteousness apart from works. And it's a righteousness received by faith. 
When we were last together, we were in Romans chapter three, and I have some verses on the screen for you, Romans chapter three, verse 21. So Paul, first of all, told you a little bit about the gospel in the beginning of Romans, and then he quickly goes into how much we need it. He talks about the depravity of the Gentile culture, the pagan culture. He talks about the sinfulness of the Jewish culture, and those who are moralists thinking that they're right with God, he puts them all in the same category, all under sin. And then light breaks on upon the sinful race in Romans chapter three when we read these words, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. That's Jesus. To which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Some of the greatest words ever penned. And then he summarizes his statement, his position, when you come to verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, Paul anticipated his Jewish hearers, the individuals he's actually speaking to at this moment in time, saying something like this. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't fit in to our Jewish history. And you say the law and the prophets testify, but what about Abraham? Anticipating that, Paul begins chapter four with these words, verse one. What then shall we say about Abraham? And he's going to make this astounding point. Abraham was justified without works. Now that's very un-Jewish. That goes against the teaching of the rabbis. And Paul is going to make that statement. He starts in verse one. What shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? That is, we are natural descendants from Abraham. We call him father. We're proud to call him father because we are of the seed of Abraham. What shall we say about Abraham? What did he discover concerning this matter of righteousness by faith alone? Verse two, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Now we were told at the end of chapter three, where is boasting in this righteousness come by faith? And Paul said it is excluded by what law, by what principle? The principle of works? No, the principle of faith. Boasting is gone. And if Abraham were justified by works, he'd have reason to boast. You know, sometimes people will boast to themselves in their secret thoughts, and sometimes people will boast to their best friends in small places, but rarely do people boast in public unless they have no idea who they are. And we've got a lot of people boasting in public. But notice you don't boast before God when you stand before God. He's your creator. He made you. If you're a Christian, he's your savior. He redeemed you. You have nothing to boast about. 
And I love those words of John Newton when he was coming to die. The great author of Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, who once had been a slave trader. And he said, you know, there's a whole lot I don't know, but this much I do know. I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. And that's the gospel. You are, I am, a great sinner. Oh, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so you boast. By the way, all boasting is self-righteousness. I'm not as bad as them. I'm better than most. Now try boasting before a God. The Holy One of Heaven, whose standard is perfection. What will you say? Can you imagine a singer Boasting about his ability before Andrea Pocelli, the great Italian tenor. Yeah, you might be able to warble a little bit, but I can really sing. Any boast before God is just as nauseating because God is holy and we are not. And you're not a candidate for salvation unless you realize you're a great sinner and you stop comparing yourself by others and start comparing yourself by the law of God which is perfection and you realize I'm ungodly. And that was Paul's whole purpose in the bulk of the first three chapters. Whether we're boasting the Jews about national privilege or personal piety, it doesn't make any difference. You cannot boast before a holy God. And it's unthinkable that we could establish our own righteousness. So verse three, what does the scripture say? By the way, I, I came across something from the pen of John Stott, one of my favorite authors, and I just had to share this with you because I thought it was so powerful. This simple statement that is often a throwaway to get to the heart of what the scripture says is so vitally important. What does the scripture say? Four observations. Number one, the word scripture is singular, which means the Bible. When we talk about the Bible, we're talking about its unity. We're not talking about a library of 66 books. In a sense, it is, but it is the Bible. And when you say scripture, you're showing its fantastic unity. Secondly, the scripture speaks. The personification of the written word as though a person is actually speaking to you and there is no distinction no distinction from the writing of scripture and the voice of God. Sometimes you'll say, I wish God would speak to me. Every time you read the Bible, he does. He speaks. It is his word and his voice. And you cannot make any distinction whatsoever. Thirdly, it's in the present tense. For God continues to speak. What does the scripture say? The verb right now. And what he said then, he's saying today, the scripture still speaks today. And then fourthly, to ask the question is to imply and recognize the authority of scripture that it is a divine rule and guide. And when the scripture speaks, the argument has ended. 
And so Paul says, let's turn to this scripture. What does this scripture say? What a great way to address any issue in your life. What does, this, what does God say? And take that word as your guiding rule. Well, the answer is actually a quotation from Genesis 15. What does the scripture say? Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A little bit about that story from Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham had fought against many kings and won great battles and was somewhat fearful that those kings might come back in retaliation. Abraham had also had a promise from God and that promise had not been realized over many years. In Genesis 12, Abraham, you're gonna be a great nation. Great peoples will come from you and you'll be a blessing to the world. And Abraham said, I don't even have a kid. But God, he gave the promise again and Abraham believed God. Believe. Jewish contemporaries believe that that particular word, believe, doesn't mean faith as much as it means faithfulness. Though there was a sense in which Abraham was almost a god. I'm reading from James Edwards, a great scholar, who said, it would be difficult to overestimate Abraham's importance in Judaism, a hero who worships the true God in the midst of idolatrous people. Abraham's legacy had been polished with a rich patina of miracle and legend. Indeed, in the nearly two millennials since his death, he had been elevated to a quasi-divine status and his grave in Hebron was worshipped as a holy place. In reward for his meritorious life, he was called the friend of God, Isaiah 43 in light of his credentials, both real and imagined, it's no wonder the Jews were proud to be called the children of Abraham. The rabbi said he was righteous because of his deeds. And when God came to redeem people and call them to repent, he never called on Abraham to repent because he was perfect. That was the whole idea. Abraham was righteous because he was faithful. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited him for righteousness. Radical trust. Abraham was told, you're gonna have a child, but I'm old. And so is Sarah. She's as old as the hills. <laughs> How in the world are we gonna have children? Eliezer's ineligible. Ishmael's rejected. Where can I turn to? And when all hope is gone, God stands and his word offers hope. He had to believe in the one who made the promise. And he believed in God completely. And he believed in God personally. His achievements were phenomenal, but they meant nothing. And his righteousness came from God via grace. It wasn't as merit. Ernest Caseman has said that 
Faith is a form of poverty. It's a great statement. When you realize you have nothing, you can only believe. You hear God's word. Doubts that fill the soul give way to humble submission to the God who is above us. You say, I can't understand this. I don't deserve this. And God says, that's right, but believe. And because of Jesus, I will make you righteous. Christians suffer from two kinds of legalism. The one legalism is the things we do to get saved, and the other kind of legalism is the things we do to keep saved. And both are deadly. We are saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. The gospel never changes. And so you come to Jesus and you receive him as your Lord and Savior and say, that's great, but now it's all based on my performance. And if I don't do well, I might lose him. You cannot lose the God who has saved you. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And he accepts you based on not who you are or what you've done. He, based, he receives you based on who Jesus is and what he has done. And once you're in Christ, you can't get out of Christ and you're forever received in Christ, accepted in the beloved. And we forget that. We Christians forget that. One of my greatest desires every day is to stay, to remember that I am in the gospel and to keep that perspective and not to stray into a performance Type of mentality. For I am accepted before God based on the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. By the, you say, by the way, you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm such a wicked, you don't know how bad I am. It doesn't make any difference. Apparently, you don't know how great Jesus is. And your sin is great. I know it is. And I don't even know the depths of my depravity. But by God's grace, he says, believe in my son. And when I do, I'm righteous like his son. And that's what Abraham did. We must have the same attitude that Mary had when she was told as a virgin, you're gonna have a baby. That's outrageous. That's shameful. That's impossible. And how does she end the dialogue with the angel? May it be to me as you have said. That is great faith. But Lord, my sin is so great, it's outrageous, it's shameful. It's impossible for you to save me. Really? When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins upon him and paid the penalty. And now simple faith in the wonderful Savior brings righteousness. And that's what had happened to Abraham. There's a second word in verse 3 that is so vitally important. It's the word credited. It's going to be found 11 times in this chapter. So I'm reading along, going over it and over it. 
marking down on a piece of paper, I have the text printed, and marking down on a piece of paper, and I'm seeing how many times the name Abraham is used, which is about eight, and I'm seeing how many times the word faith is used, which is over six, and, and suddenly this word, credited, jumps out of the pages of scripture, grabs me around the neck, slaps me in the face and says, look at this. For here's the key to chapter four. The word credited is a financial term. It's used in the realm of commerce. And it means to put something to someone's account. Abraham believed and to his account was credited on the positive side of the ledger Righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness, not his own. That was told very clearly in chapter one. By the way, it's in the passive voice. This is called the divine passive because God's the one who does it. God credits the righteousness to your account. In Philemon 18, one of my favorite verses, Paul said to Philemon about Onesimus, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, remember the rest of it? Charge that to my account. It's unfair for me to ask you to quote it when we're all reading 20 different translations. But that's the way I remember, memorized it. Charge that to my account, Paul says. And when Jesus says, if they have done anything wrong... <laughs> Heavenly Father, if they have offended you, and I know they have, charge that to my account, and I'll pay for it. That, my friend, is grace. Look at verse four. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You go to work for McDonald's, and I hear now, what is it, $15 an hour? It keeps going up every time I go through the drive-thru. But if you work 10 hours, then you can multiply 10 by the 15 and you get paid $150. You earned it. They don't come to you and say, well, we just want to give you a little gift. Here's the money you worked for. It doesn't work that way. They're obligated to pay and could be sued if they don't. However, verse five says, to the one who does not work, which sounds like music to many people's ears. You mean I can get something for not working for it? The one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited, there's that word again, as righteousness. It's now a gift. Works, credit, obligation. Not working, faith, gift, righteousness. It's purely of God's amazing grace. And the more I understand this, the more I'm convinced that many people in Bible-believing churches don't live in the grace of God. That's why we're often miserable and cantankerous and that's why we act like we don't know the Lord because some people don't. And we know the language and we're religious but we've never been touched by grace. And we don't stand in the grace that has redeemed us. Get this, 
God justifies the ungodly. That's why you're not candidate for justification until you say, I'm ungodly. But I'm not as bad. Don't measure yourself by others. Look at the standard of Christ. God justifies the ungodly. What a wicked thing to say. The Jews may respond. That's offensive. Godliness, ungodliness, ungodliness is the description of all individuals in the human race. God made us for his glory in his image. We sinned and all human beings from Adam on are ungodly. Some to a greater degree than others, but all ungodly. God can't justify the godly because there aren't any godly. You say, but look at all I have done. All your righteousness is like a filthy rag. Hmm. Should be thrown away. Repugnant. Doesn't measure up to the standard of God. Our sins are placed on his account. His righteousness is placed on our account. Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus became a sin offering for us. So that, purpose statement, we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. There it is. What a great trade. Now notice as you're going through the text in chapter four, he leaves Abraham for a moment and talks about David in verse six. David says the same thing. What do you mean the same thing? The same thing, that righteousness does not come by works. In fact, the connecting word between these two men is the word credit, reckon, count. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then Paul quotes Psalm 32. You know the story. When David had committed those horrible multiple sins and I'm not sure I could even name them all. There are, there are some there that are probably hidden. But he took another man's wife and killed her husband. So that woman who was pregnant after a one night stand would become his wife and then lied about it for at least nine months until the child was born and he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And so he poured out his heart to God, Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones waxed old. It was like super pressure upon my heart. And then I confessed my sin and you forgave. And what does the scripture say? These are taken from the first two verses of Psalm 32. Blessed are those, this is verse seven of Romans four. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one Who's the, who sinned, the Lord will never count against them. 
Three times he talks about transgression and sin and sin. Transgression is lawlessness. Sin is failure. Sin is to step over a known boundary. Sin is to fall short of a known standard. But three times it's mentioned what God will do. God forgives the transgression, he covers the sin, and he will not count it against you. Have you ever read that story of David and thought, wow, I wouldn't forgive that dude. I mean, that's bad stuff. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. (laughs) Neither do you. But I'm not that. Stop comparing yourself with others. Yeah, you are. You're a sinner. How much sin does it take to break the law of God? James says, one, and you're a criminal. You're a lawbreaker. And one of the amazing things is that verse six, credited righteousness, is synonymous with verse seven, not crediting sin against you. There is a double counting here. Our sins do not count against us and his righteousness counts for us. We are reckoned righteous, and it is not imputed to us the evil wickedness that we have done. This double counting is found somewhere else. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the ministry or message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then the verse we already quoted, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be counted, made righteous through God's righteousness and the person of his son. That's the best news in the world. It really is. Nothing better than that. Greatest truth in the universe. One other thing. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, before circumcision. And Paul deals with that from 9 through 12 to emphasize the fact that everyone can be saved. Because not only did the Jews believe that Abraham was sinless, they believed that his circumcision had something to do with his righteousness. Verse nine, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteous, Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Or was it before? It was not after, but before. Now here you have to do a little bit of study in Genesis, and you realize that there are at least 14 years between Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous, And 14 years later, Genesis 17, he's circumcised. 14 years later, that had nothing to do with his justification. 
verse 11, and he received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. A sign uh, points to something, a seal authenticates something. And so the believer knows in Jesus Christ that they are circumcised in their heart, Colossians, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians. But those things don't save. The saving is the righteousness of God given to us in Christ. And that is the work of regeneration. So Abraham had the righteousness that he received by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Here's the truth. It would have shocked them. It would have been, it would have been like a stick of dynamite going off. Abraham was justified when he was a Gentile. What? Yeah, Gentile. And the one who justified Abraham, the Gentile, is the one who will continue to justify those who put their faith in Christ. End of verse 11, so he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, the Gentiles, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Verse 12, and he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, outwardly Jewish, but they follow the footsteps of faith, that of our father Abraham. It's interesting that Abraham, Paul calls Abraham the forefather in verse one, and that's because Paul was a Jew. Now Abraham is called a father of all who believe. He's the father of those who put their faith and trust in him. Now I have to say this. <laughs> Abraham was a character. He was not only always righteous. Did he not lie about his wife a couple times? And if you don't think that's a very bad sin, ask your wife. <laughs> if we were in that situation, honey, and I thought I might die, would it be okay to say we're really not married? Yeah, they'll take you and abuse you, but I'll live. Would that be a sin, honey? And after you got yourself off of the floor, picked yourself off of the floor, you would realize what a stupid, sinful, selfish act that was. And I don't have to tell you that David was a sinner. You see, the two things that connects them in this text is the fact that they are credited with righteousness and their sin is not counted against them, but they were both sinners. And Abraham brings forth the seed of Messiah the son and David is the king. The Messiah will follow, reign on David's throne. They're both pictures of Christ. And they're both messages of mercy. Both failed miserably, but God saved them graciously. You say, this is too easy just to believe. Easy for you. Not easy for Christ, right? G. Campbell Morgan one time was talking to some miners in Wales. They were going down in the coal mines and Morgan was trying to witness to this one man and the one man heard the message of the gospel and said, you know, that can't be right. 
I have to pay for it. I have to do something to get it. And Morgan thought, when you went down into the mine this morning, was it a hard thing for you to do? Did it take a lot of effort? He said, no, there's an elevator there. You just get on the elevator, boom, it takes you down. Wasn't hard for me. And then it dawned on him, it wasn't hard for me, but the company put the elevator in at great cost to them. There's nothing I can do to be saved and all of us need to be saved. And so God says, believe, I've done it all. And when we believe personally and when we believe completely, we are immediately saved by the grace of God. And that grace should never leave you. And every day you ought to rejoice in the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. You are accepted in the beloved and there is no other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Paul went to great lengths to let his hearers, his readers know that they were not saved because they were Jews. They were not saved because they were pious. None of that measures up to perfect righteousness, God's righteousness. But Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins so they wouldn't be counted against us. And he lived a perfect life and rose from the dead, accepted by the Father, seated at the right hand of God so that he would have a perfect righteousness to give to us. And he says, if you will believe, you will receive God's righteousness. While our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, let me ask you, have you ever truly been saved? Have you ever felt your sin? And have you ever noticed that you're ungodly and you need to run from it and there's no way you can save yourself and maybe you're feeling uh, so pressured and so stressed, but I tell you today, Jesus stands and says, believe. And you will be forgiven. Heavenly Father, deal with our hearts. In your holy name, amen.